So if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we're going to continue on. We've been going through this series called In This House, as we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy and talking about the house rules of the church. How do we live? And I'm going to read in a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, which this is the second week that we've been in this section where we're talking about the requirements or the qualifications for somebody who's going to be an elder in a church. And last week, we went through verses 1 through 3. This week, we're going to go through verses 4 through 7. But to start our time, we're going to read all seven verses just to get the overall setting for that. So you can follow along if you have a Bible. And if you don't, you can follow along on the screen as the words scroll through there. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This is God's word. Well, when I was growing up, There's a phrase, in fact, uh, four words in a row that was my least favorite thing ever to hear from my mom. These four words consecutively. And those four words were, go clean your room. Almost any punishment, any chore was not as bad as those four words, go clean your room. I hated doing that. Um, But like I'm pretty sure all kids did, I thought I had figured out a trick to get around this. You know, all kids kind of think they're geniuses discovering things for the first time. And I thought I had because I came to realize, all right, there's a way to make it look like I've cleaned my room without actually going through all the work of cleaning my room. Because there are some things that I can stuff things under. There's a dresser over here and I got a bunch of Legos that I can just kind of shove under here and they don't poke out. Then I got a closet that I can push things in and kind of push it closed with my back until it's pried closed. I got a bed that I can hide stuffed animals under. I, I can do this. I can set up my room in a way that makes it seem like I've cleaned the room, even though I haven't actually gone through the work of cleaning the room. And so I could do all that and then call out to my mom, I'm done. Can I go back to watching TV? And she came and stood in the doorway, the room would look clean. Everything would be good until she started to step inside of the room. At which point I wanted to say, no, 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 no need, no need. Stay there in the doorway. The room is clean. Just don't look too closely. And in some ways, I think this is kind of parallel to sometimes how we want to treat people that we admire in society. Now, sometimes there's an actor that I just really, really like his movies, or there's an athlete that I like to root for, and then somebody starts to tell me about their personal life, and I just want to say, no, 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 don't want to know, don't want to know, 
Don't want to look too closely. I still want to root for him when the team comes on. I still want to see his movies. I don't want to know. Sometimes we have politicians who are on our side of the issues and we really like them when we vote for them and we kind of cheer for them. And then a story comes out and we just say, no, 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 no. Don't look too closely. Everything's good. Everything's fine. This is a great person. Just don't look too closely. That in many ways is the way that we function in the world with prominent and important people. They're great. They're admirable. They're people we should focus our attention on. Just don't look too closely. That's the way of the world. But what Paul has been telling us is that in this house, in the church of Jesus Christ, it's actually the opposite of that. The call is not don't look too closely. The invitation is, God willing, the more closely you look at the leaders of the church, the more that you will see Jesus reflected in their lives. It's a high calling. But that's the difference. The difference isn't they're talented, they're eloquent, they look good, admire them, just don't look too closely. The invitation throughout verses one through seven is look more closely to see the leaders live out the lives that we all as Christians are called out to live. So last week in verses one through three, what we did is we walked through the qualifications for an overseer or an elder, which is the same office that's held in the church. What we saw is as opposed to skill and charisma being the thing that was most valued, what was most valued is character. And in a similar way, what we're gonna see in verses four through seven is that the other thing that's valued in the leaders of the church is consistency. The idea that this person is the same at the church, among the people of God, at their life group, on a Sunday morning, all these places, that's the same person that they are in their house, at their place of work, and when they're out and about in the community, that there's consistency in the life. And specifically, the reason consistency is so important is that a consistent life gives credibility to the message being proclaimed. If we are telling of the message of how God reconciles people to himself, about how God makes us new through Jesus, then a consistent life can either give credibility or can rob credibility from Jesus, from the gospel, from Christianity, and from the church. And part of what we all have to reckon with, not just leaders, this is not just a message for leaders, even though it is focused on elders, The reason it's not just focused on leaders, but is for all of us, is because basically what Paul does in these seven verses is he talks about the fact that the main qualification for being a leader in Jesus' church is to live as a mature Christian. And therefore, what the leaders are called to, all of us should be striving for. All of us should want to live lives that reflect Jesus to the world. And we've all got to ask ourselves, are we giving credibility to Jesus, to the church, to Christianity, to the gospel? Or are we robbing it of its credibility because we're not living consistently wherever we are? So what we're going to do as we walk through verses 4 through 7 is we're going to see that there's three settings or three areas in which Paul is going to talk to Timothy about how an overseer needs to live with consistency. And as we see the calling for leaders, we're also going to see a calling for all of us to live in light of what he talks about. Three areas where consistency is important. And the first one is in verses four and five. And what he's going to say is we strive for consistency at home. We read through verses four and five again. Verse four, it says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, 
How can he take care of God's church? And there's a lot here, but let me just start. Three things to notice about these two verses. So the first thing to notice is this. We, we got these two verses. They have a relationship with each other. In verse five, we have the call. Right? He needs to be able to manage his own family well. And in verse five, we have the reason why that's so important. The reason why he needs to manage his family well is because if he's not taking care of his own family, why is he going to be entrusted with leadership in the church of Jesus Christ? So we have what Paul is saying to Timothy is in a way something very similar to what Jesus said a whole bunch of times in the Gospels. Some version of this saying of Jesus, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with much. But if you're not faithful, even with the little thing that God gives you, don't assume you're going to be faithful with the big thing that God calls you to do. So we all start there and start with the idea of there are some of us that think that we should have more of a voice in the things that are going on in the church, maybe in this church in particular. They think, gosh, when I gather as my life group, I wish people listened to me a little bit more. I think I have good and helpful things to say to them. And, and maybe I feel like I should be an elder or, or I feel like I should be a leader in the men's ministry or in the women's ministry. And sometimes my voice is kind of drowned out. I think that they should listen to me. I think that I have good, helpful things to say. I think that I could help people with the problems that they're facing in their life. I think that I could help shepherd people through their trials and, and difficulties. I feel like I could do that. Paul's opening message to any of us that feel like we should be in that position is basically this. Go clean your room. Start where God has put you. And for, for most of us, the, the immediate context of that is to say, all right, start with your family. Start with the immediate sphere that God's given you. Don't assume you're going to be ready for the big thing that God calls you to do if you're not being faithful in the small thing that God calls you to do. So he starts there, faithful with little, faithful with much. That's where we start. Uh, thing number two to notice about this passage. You'll see throughout this, as throughout all of the elder qualifications, the male pronouns are constantly being used. He must manage his own family well. And the reason for this is not to exclude women from this message or make this a message that's just for men, but because as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, we believe that men and women are both made in the image of God, that we are made absolutely equal, but that we're also made different. That God beautifully made masculinity and femininity. They go together. There's beauty in how we work together as men and women. And those differences play themselves out in some specific ways of how we function in the world and in the church. And one of the ways that that plays itself out is that the role of overseer or the role of elder is going to be something that's done by men and not by women. And so the reason he keeps talking about that is because of that. And also for, for all of us as men, there, there's a particular calling here because he makes the assumption when he talks about he must manage his own family or, or literally his own household well. The idea here is that there's a unique calling for men to take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of their families. And one of the reasons this is really important is because we as men can easily push this off. If we're married, it's very easy for us to say, she'll kind of take care of that. She'll make sure that the kids are taken care of. She'll make sure that the household kind of works well. She'll make sure that we go to church. She'll make sure that the kids read their Bibles. She'll take care of that. And some of you men might even be in a situation where you're like, she's probably even more godly anyway, so she probably should be taking care of it. There's a unique calling for us as men to take responsibility. And, and by the way, as I just said, that doesn't mean that you're the more godly one. That simply means you're 
embracing the powerful role that you as a husband, that you as a father have to take the sacrificial lead. To say, I'm not going to leave it to anyone else. I'm going to take it upon myself to make sure that my family is spiritually taken care of. I'm going to make sure that we make it to church. I'm going to make sure that we're involved with God's people. I'm going to make sure that we're reading scripture together. I'm going to take this on and make sure that this happens by God's grace. This is my responsibility. There's an assumption from Paul. And the assumption is that there's a partnership, but that the person taking core responsibility for that is the man. So that's thing number two to notice. Um, Now, here's thing number three to notice. He says, manage his own family well, or literally in the Greek, manage his own household well. And you could look at that and say, well, there's a lot of elements involved in the household. You know, in the household, all right, so, so you have a husband and wife and you have some kids and, and in the first century, maybe you also have some servants and then on top of that, you have an estate or you have some property and you have a whole bunch of different things to manage. So maybe when Paul is saying he must manage his own household well, what he's really saying is this has got to be a guy that's just super organized, really good with details, making sure everything's clicking, making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be and it's just a smooth household, all the bills are paid, everything is going smoothly. But I want you to look in verse five because Paul gives us a clue to what he has in mind with manage. He parallels manage with something else. Verse five, he says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? It seems like the main thing that Paul has in mind with manage is not that you're great with details, but that you're taking care of your own family because that qualifies you to be in a position where you might be able to take care of God's church. Let me do something a little bit risky here. Last week, when we talked about the first three verses, talked about, all right, with, with overseer, with an elder, there's one core thing. There's a core calling for what the elder or what the overseer is supposed to do. And that core thing that they're called to do is to do what? Shepherd, yes, I'm going to take it. I heard one person say it. <laughs> Successful sermon last week. That's how I'm going to take the whole thing. All right, good. Shepherd, the key thing that the overseer is called to do is to shepherd God's people. There's a very similar idea here. What he's basically saying to, to all of us who have, who have children, but in particular to the men, your family is your first flock. Those children, those are your core sheep. Those are the people that you're meant to take care of, that you're meant to shepherd and care for and pray for and be thoughtful for and read scripture to. These are your core flock. Don't put yourself in a position where you're saying, I think I'm ready to shepherd the people of God unless you're already shepherding your own family. In fact, the Puritans used to refer to the the nuclear family, as he's talking about, as the little church, as a microcosm for the family of God as a whole. So when he's talking about managing, he's not talking about being super detail-oriented. He's talking about taking care of. Now, it's important in talking about this, as you go on in verse four, he gets a bit more explicit where it's clear he's not just talking about the estate and the finances because the specific thing that he zeroes in on is he must see that his children obey him. So the core thing is talking about the children. For, uh, Titus, in the parallel passage to this, to this, Titus chapter one, verse six, talks about the children not being wild and disobedient. In fact, Titus goes as far, and it's a little bit hard to tell in the Greek, of saying that the children either must be believers or must be faithful. And scholars go back and forth on exactly what Paul is saying in that. But but it gives us the impression this is a big calling. The idea here is that the children are being managed and the children are responding in a way that's setting an example for the rest of the church. They're not wild and disobedient. There's not chaos in the home. There's a sense of order. 
And even more specifically, look at what he says at the end of verse 4. He says, he must see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect, which means this. You could be a man, you could say, I know how to get my kids to obey. I know how to make sure that they shut up and sit there and don't bother anyone. That's not doing so in a manner worthy of full respect. He's not given license here to be a tyrant or to be a bully. He's saying, you're managing your children. You're making sure that your children are obedient, but you're doing it in a way that you're a shepherd. You're caring for their souls. You're looking to shepherd them and guide them so that they're responding rightly. Now, now this goes back, this brings up all kinds of questions, especially when it comes to qualifications for an elder, where you can say, all right, well, first of all, do they need to have children? Could somebody without children be an elder because they wouldn't be able to manage their own children? And even beyond that, does this mean that all of the children need to be Christians? And beyond that, are, are we talking about just children in the home, just young children? What about adult children? And, and what if somebody, for example, has like eight children and one of them is wild and disobedient, but the other five are really good? But what do we do? These are legitimate questions that come up with this. Let me just say, I don't want to beg off of all of those, for, but for our purposes right now, what I want to say is, I think that's getting a little bit too much into the weeds. And Paul seems willing to leave a subjective element to this. To say the big picture of what he's talking about draws all the way back to the very first thing he said that an overseer must be, and that's that he must be above reproach. Which doesn't mean perfect, but means his life is an example to the rest of the church. So this person that he has in mind here is somebody that's parenting in a way that in general we would say parent like that. That's how Christian parenting is meant to go. Above reproach, not perfect, thank God the qualification here is not that you have perfect children or that you're a perfect parent. In fact, let me just tell you right now, Karina and I, with all three of our sons, have gone through a period of time where they have regularly been kicked out of their class at church. (laughs) Now, our oldest two were past that by the time we moved down here, but David wasn't born yet. So David went through that period here, and it's long enough ago I feel like I can talk about this. Uh, Because it was several years ago. (laughs) And and it's funny because David is our most agreeable kid. He's like the most compliant of our three kids. But he just decided suddenly he was special. And he didn't need to do what the teachers told him to do. And you can ask Lori about this. I'm not telling you you should go and ask her about it. But she'll confirm everything that I'm saying. And so David just decided that each week when it was time to move from kind of the classroom where they were all together to the classroom that they were going to spend the rest of the time, he just didn't need to go. He was just special, and he was going to just sit there. And so the teacher, Lori, would go up and say, all right, David, it's time to go. And he would just say, nope, not going. <laughs> and we, we had told Lori, no special treatment. Don't, don't treat him special because he's our son. And, uh, and thankfully, she didn't. And so she would tell David, if you don't come, I'm going to have to call your mom. And he was sort of like, call my mom. <laughs> I love my mom. I get to see my mom. <laughs> so it was easy for me to say no special treatment. I was up here. They weren't going to come get me. They were going to go get Karina. <laughs> And, and he grew past that, and eventually he realized this wasn't working for him. But I bring this up just to say, God has a way of humbling us all in this. None of us is a perfect parent. We certainly are not perfect parents. We certainly don't have perfect children. The idea here is not that you never have anything that happens. In fact, talking about this stuff from up front always makes me nervous. Like a, earlier in the summer, I, I taught a four-week class about parenting and gospel-centered parenting. And the whole time, I was just like, something's going to happen. Like, I'm teaching on parenting. Something's going to happen that's going to make everybody look at me and be like, why should we listen to you if your kids behave this way? 
He's not calling us to be perfect parents, but he's saying, are you parenting in a way that you would want other parents to look at you and say, all right, that's sort of what we're going for. That's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for that kind of idea with the children. And and again, with the idea of shepherding. And and there's so much to talk about about this, but but let me just say three things. If you're sitting out here and being like, what does that look like? What does it look like to shepherd my kids well? Let me give you at least three things that you can do, that we all can do. The first is this. Shepherds feed their sheep. Feed your sheep, feed your children the scriptures. Even if you're saying, I I don't know how to give a devotional, don't give a devotional, just read the Bible. Just read them the chapter out of the LBF Church Bible reading plan. Just feed them the scriptures, that's number one. Number two is this, remember that you are a shepherd of their hearts and not just their behavior. So be willing to have those long conversations, be willing to be in there when it comes to discipline, not just to try to get the behavior changed, but really try to find out what's going on in their heart. Look for their heart. Look not just to punish, but to discipline and guide them along. And finally, number three is this. Um, If you want your children to be involved with Jesus Church later on in their lives, they are very unlikely to do so if you treat church like a hobby that you do when nothing better is going on. If you're showing your kids, we go to church when we don't have a better option, your kids are very unlikely to take Jesus or his church more seriously than you are. Involve yourself with the people of God so that your children see that this is central to their lives. Paul says, if you want to be a shepherd in God's church, in fact, if you want to just be an example, if you want to shine the light to other people in the community, you got to have consistency at home. That's number one. And number two in verse six is he says, you also have to have consistency over time. Not just a flash in the pan, not just a quick spurt. And he says, he must not be a recent convert. And the word for recent convert, it has to do with the idea of being newly planted. It says, the elder can't just be somebody that just came to faith in Christ, no matter how enthusiastic and passionate they are, don't put them in that position of leadership. Although it's worth saying in this, this is something that's important. Paul isn't in any way saying recent converts, who needs them? Paul is all about people coming to faith in Jesus. And Paul would have known probably more than anyone else, the incredible value that people who have just come to faith in Jesus bring to a church family. You all know, you know what it's like to be around people that just came to faith in Jesus? You know how invigorating it is? They're saying, I can't believe that God forgave me. I can't believe God forgave me. God, 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 the God of the universe. He loves me. I can't believe we're in this position. I can't believe that I get to come and I get to sing songs to him. And I can't believe there's so many people around me that are doing this. I can't believe I have the Holy Spirit. Me, I have the Holy Spirit in me. I can't believe what God has done in my life. And when you're around people like that, you're just like, oh my gosh, you're you're getting reminded of what God has done for you. You're getting drawn back to the gospel and the free grace that God has poured out to us. Paul isn't saying recent converts who needs them. He does say recent converts don't put them in charge. And here's the deal. The, The reason is this. There's two things that recent converts lack. They lack perspective and they lack humility. And you might even parallel it to this. Have you been around um, a couple that just got married and they're just totally googly-eyed over each other still? Just like, so in love, so isn't marriage great? 
They're just like, ah, we go to sleep and we're together. We wake up and we're together. We're always together. And then somebody's been married for 20 years and they're like, we go to sleep together. We wake up together. We're always together. I don't know what to do here. When you're around people like that, I mean, again, it's sort of like the new convert. You're invigorated. You're like, you know what? Marriage is great and this is wonderful and I'm remembering that God has brought us together and this is a good gift. It's positive to be around people who are newly in love and newly married. But what you wouldn't want to do is with that couple that's been married a month, say, we've got this couple in our church that's really struggling in their marriage. We want you to mentor them. They may be exuberant, they lack perspective, and they lack humility. And this is the case of new converts. Because just as somebody can be enthusiastic and say, I can't believe that I get to love Jesus. I can't believe I get to do all these things. I'm sharing Jesus with everybody I know. I'm reading my Bible every day. It would be that much easier for somebody in that position, especially if they're put in charge, to become conceited, as Paul warns about. In fact, he says, if you get conceited, you're in danger of falling under the same judgment as the devil, who wasn't satisfied with being a servant, but decided that he should be a master. It's not hard to see how this could happen. You're exuberant for Jesus. You're so excited about things. You're singing loudly and raising your hands at church. And then you look over at somebody else and you're like, what's their deal? They're just kind of standing there. They're supposed to be the mature one. There's all these old people that aren't even really worshiping the way that I'm worshiping. And you begin to think that you have something together that they don't have together. Whereas if you have some time under your belt, you look around and you're a little bit more suspicious of your initial conclusion about people. Because you have the perspective to look at your own life and say, you know what, in my own life, there have been times where I really haven't felt like singing because my joy has been threatened by trials I've been going through. There have been times where my face hasn't looked like it had any joy on it because I was in the trenches battling with sin and just tired. Or I was going through a trial and I just felt like I didn't have it in me anymore. When I was going through seminary, one of my professors, um, part, part of the story for him and his wife is that they had lost one of their daughters. One of their daughters had died when she was a teenager. And there was a period of time where this professor told me that they were still committed to Jesus. They were still coming to church every Sunday. And when it was the time for worship, they would stand up and he just physically couldn't sing for a period of months. He just couldn't do it. So he would stand, he would participate, but he wouldn't sing. And eventually God brought him through a point where he could again sing and engage his heart in that way. But can you just imagine if somebody would have looked over at that guy and said, what's his deal? Not very passionate, not very on fire for Jesus. What's his deal? You know what his deal is? He's in the trenches right now. He's fighting for his joy. He's fighting for his faith. And when you've walked with Jesus for longer, you have perspective and you have humility because you've recognized your own failures. And so you're looking at people that you're supposed to be shepherding and suddenly you realize, all right, I can just judge them for bad decisions that they're making, but I'm probably not going to do that as quickly because I can think of all the stupid decisions I've made. And God has stuck with me in it and God's people have stuck with me in it. There's a calling here where Paul says, no new converts, not because they're not great to be around, but because they need a track record before they can be entrusted with this. And not only this, but notice this, because I just, what I said basically was that no new converts in leadership because it would be bad for the church, which would be true. But notice that that's not even really the main thing that Paul is saying. He's not saying if new converts are put in leadership, it would be bad for the church. Who would it be bad for? It'd be bad for them. 
saying, I don't want them to fall under the trap of the devil. I don't want them to become conceited. I don't want them to fall into sin and arrogance. Protect them from what would happen. Don't say this person's so enthusiastic, we got to put them in charge. Hold off on that. Now, now just for the sake of application, you might say, all right, well, so, all right, that, that seems like good advice and we should stick by that as a church. I can't control when I was saved. What am I supposed to do with this verse? And here's at least one thing that you're supposed to do with this verse. You're supposed to remember the absolutely corrosive, destructive power of arrogance and make sure that you're still in the battle against it. Especially when you're tempted to arrogantly look at somebody else who you think is not as far along as you and to despise them for where they are. That's number one. And number two is this. You might look at your life and say, I'm not a new convert. I've been saved for a long time. All right, Let me ask you, is your life marked by consistently pursuing life in Jesus or is your life marked by a bunch of spurts of starts and stops? Are you like, I'm really good at walking with Jesus for like the first week after men's retreat. Like I'm great at that. I'm all over that. But then after that, I kind of just go back to my old things and I'll read my Bible for a week and I'll be really excited and then I'll go six months and won't crack it open again. Is your life marked by sudden starts and stops? And and if you're sitting there saying, yeah, it kind of is, my point here is not to judge you for that. My point is to say, God has something better for you in that. That's not what your life is meant to be. Your life is meant to be a life that has consistency over time so that people can see you as somebody who's in it for the long haul with Jesus. Consistency at home, consistency over time. And finally, in verse seven, he says, consistency in the world. He says he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. And by outsiders, he means non-Christians. So what he's saying here is it can't just be somebody that within the sphere of the church, on Sunday mornings, at their life group, in their Sunday school class, that they're really good and they seem really godly. It's got to be somebody that has a good reputation with people that are outside the church so that they wouldn't look at that person and be dumbfounded of why a person like that is in church leadership. Let me just tell you a quick story. So um, when we lived in Oregon, there was a while where the local Applebee's was hosting a weekly game where they'd have a Monopoly tournament. Um, And by Monopoly, of course, I mean poker. And so (laughs) I would go there and play poker. If you have a problem with me playing poker, we can talk afterwards. But um, I'd go there each Tuesday night and there was a a small group of us from the church that would go out there every Tuesday night. And part of it was just because we had fun playing poker. And part of it was because I was like, hey, I work at a church. I'm not around non-Christians all the time. And so this is a chance for me to get around some other non-Christians, talk to them about Jesus, Um, which God did provide good opportunities for that. Um, And there was this one guy who was a part of that group. Every week he was there. Um, For the life of me, I can't remember what his name was. Um, But but he he was a young guy, probably about 20 years old. And he was, he was a nice enough guy, foulest mouth you've ever heard on anyone ever. You know, he couldn't say six words without one of them starting with F. It was just, you know, it, it was difficult to be around. And, and then beyond that, he would take frequent, very non-subtle marijuana breaks between deals. Just be like, I'm just going to go outside real quick. And we were like, we know what you're doing outside. We can smell it when you come back in. So just kind of, you know, messy, chaotic life in a lot of ways. But we were, we were trying to reach out to him. And uh, one of the times that we were all there, me and the other guys um, who all went to our church together, we, we were talking about church. And he said, oh, you guys go to that church, you know, because he, he had heard of our church before. And we said, yeah, yeah, the four of us all go to that church. And he paused for a minute. And then he told us what church he went to. 
And it was hard not to do a spit tank, spit take when we heard this. We were just like, oh my gosh, you go to church. Never would have guessed this in a million years. We didn't say this, but that was sort of the thought going through. This is the last person that we would have thought of going to church. And then here's what I did. I didn't do this out loud, but, but I'll be honest with you. What I did in my head is I immediately judged that church. I immediately in my head thought, if that's the kind of person that goes to that church, I don't know what's going on there. At our church, we would never have anybody like that. And, and I realized pretty shortly that that wasn't cool. That, that, that wasn't right. There's lots of people that go to a church. I don't know the whole story, but just that was my immediate thought. My immediate thought was, if that guy goes to that church, something's messed up at that church. Now, here's the reason I'm telling you this. Uh, I'm somebody, I'm pretty committed to Jesus' church. I'm pretty committed to thinking the best about the church. And yet my instinct was, if that's the kind of person that goes to that church, I don't know what's going on at that church. Just think how much more somebody that doesn't have an inclination to try to believe the best about Jesus' church, that maybe is already suspicious that the church is just a whole bunch of hypocrites, hears something like that and how easy it would be to immediately think, if that's what that church is about, if that's what Christians are about, if that's what Jesus is about, I'm out. The way that we live in the world is a powerful testimony about Jesus. We should say, that's unfair. Don't judge Jesus by our behavior. But you know what Jesus told people to do? He said, judge me by their behavior. You'll know who I am because they're all loving one another. And we constantly are arguing with God. We're like, ah, don't look at us. Don't just look at God. And God is like, no, look at them. Look at all of them. Look at all the Christians. Look at the way that they're living and you'll see me. So it's, it's worth asking yourself right now. Are you the kind of person that if somebody found out you went to church, they would be dumbfounded? They would just think, you? You go to church? You of all people? I've heard the things that you say when we work together. I've seen the way that you behave out on the baseball field. I've seen the way that you are out and about in your business. You go to church? We have the opportunity either to give credibility to the gospel or to rob it of its credibility. And Paul gives a powerful warning here, ending his warning by saying that you could fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap, which I I think what he's saying is the same thing. You can fall into hypocrisy if you live this way. And a quick word on hypocrisy, because it's a word that's overused. Hypocrisy is not when you fail to live up to your own standards. You know how many people fail to live up to their own standards? All of us. Christians, non-Christians, everyone fails to live up to their own standards. Hypocrisy is not when you fail. Hypocrisy is when you fake. Hypocrisy is when you're an actor. We all fail. You are not a hypocrite if at your place of work, somebody could say, oh yeah, I'm around him. And this one time he was really frustrated with somebody and he said something really rude. And then later on in the day, he came back and apologized to us all. What a hypocrite. It's not a hypocrite. That's a human That's somebody who has flaws and is taking responsibility for them. But are we living the kinds of lives that other people would say, I never would have associated you with Jesus because of the way that you're living? We're robbing the gospel of credibility if we do that. Now, now I want to ask a question that that I think maybe draws all this together. And that's the question, where are you inconsistent? Let's take a moment for all of us right now. This is what we've been talking about today. And again, this message is for leaders, this message is for elders, but this message is for all of us. 
to say, all right, I, I can either lend credibility to Jesus and to the gospel, or I can rob it of its credibility by the way that I'm living. And if I'm living an inconsistent life. So where are you living inconsistently? I'm not even saying, are you living inconsistently? We all have inconsistencies in our lives. Where are you living inconsistently? Are you living inconsistently at home? Are you thinking that you should be grabbing at power and having more authority and having more of a voice? But when it comes to your home life, you're not even being faithful there. You're not being faithful amongst the sphere, amongst the group of friends that God has given you in your immediate contact. You're not being faithful in your life group, and yet you think you should be in charge of more. Are you right now grabbing at power and you're not being faithful in what God has given you to do? Or are you suffering because you don't have inconsistency over time? You're full of spurts, you're full of starts and stops, and then when you're in one of those starts and you're really doing well, you look at other people around you and you despise them for not doing as well as you, and then you just peter out and your life is not a long obedience in the same direction. Your life is a bunch of starts and stops. God's calling for you is faithfulness over time, consistency over time. Do you look at your life and say, I I don't have consistency in the church and in the world. Right now I'm living the kind of life that I could easily be accused of being a hypocrite because I have a whole different set of rules for myself for how I conduct myself out there versus how I conduct myself in here. Where are you being inconsistent? Now let me just say, I'm not blind to the fact that us asking this question, us holding the mirror up to ourselves right now, this is pretty daunting. This could feel pretty crushing right now. We could feel like, well, great, went to church, glad I went, found out I'm an abject failure in all the areas of my life. (laughs) Thanks for that. We do need the mirror held up to us. But what I really want to emphasize is the mirror is not being held up to to us in this passage so that we walk away wallowing in our failure. The reason the mirror is being held up to us in this passage is so that we seek repentance in Jesus. God doesn't say, come to me if things are going well. If you're having a hard time, then go and solve it and then come back to me. The book of Hebrews in chapter four, the author of Hebrews says, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. If you're doing great and you're winning the battle against sin and you're wanting to praise God, come to the throne of grace. And if you're struggling and at the end of yourself and if you need to repent, come to the throne of grace. In fact, in a minute, the band is going to come out and lead us in a song that's really a song in many ways of repentance. And not only are we going to get a chance to sing that together, but also we're going to have pastors and elders and other leaders off to both sides of the stage. There's a chance at any point during this song, if you want to pray with someone about something that God has put on your heart, even if it's not related to this message, but especially if it is, if you say, I see an inconsistency and I want to repent of it, I want help on this, you'll have the chance to do that. But let me just remind you of what the author of Hebrews says that we get if we go to the throne of grace. He says we get grace, we get gifts that we don't deserve from God, we get mercy, which means he doesn't wipe us out even though a lot of times he should, and not only do we get grace and mercy, we get help. So you might be at a point where you're like, I see my inconsistencies, I don't know how I'm going to do anything about this. You get help when you go to the throne of grace. You get help specifically when you come to a brother or a sister and humble yourself and say, I need God's help. And you experience an extension of God's grace through that other person. 
So in a moment, in fact, right now, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand as we prepare for this. I'm going to pray for us as we get ready to do this. And again, at any point, let's all respond in repentance and worship. But at any point during this song, if you want to come and pray with someone, if you want that interaction with God's grace, at any point in the song, just go ahead and come to the front of one of the sides and there will be people to pray for you. Let me pray for us as we get ready though. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you that you don't condemn us when we fall short in the ways that we do, but that you give us grace and mercy and help. We wanna shine the light of Jesus so that people can experience new life. We pray that you do that in our church. And we pray that now you receive our worship, our affection, and our repentance as we bring our burdens to you and look for your grace and mercy and help. In Jesus' name, amen.